Hello, and welcome to Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. My name is Catherine Troyer, and joining me is Anthony Tresca. Hey there. This is a podcast devoted to thoughtful discussions about that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is, for better or worse, giving us nightmares. And we are so very, very thankful to have you joining us for our discussion of 2006's Bug. If you've been listening to our last couple of episodes, um, thank you. If you're joining us yeah, for the first time. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Right. Wherever you are in your journey with us, thank you. Uh, but if you've been listening for the last couple of episodes, you know that we have decided to embrace the the time in which we are currently living, the COVID-19 situation. Oh, is and that if, what's been going on? I, you know, I mean, I, that's what people tell I just, me. I just <laughs> thought people didn't want to hang out with me anymore. That's the truth. The globe, <laughs> it is a global conspiracy to trick people, you specifically, into thinking that you still have friends when really no one likes I you. I knew it. I yep. knew this was a cover-up the whole time. Yes, it's just a very elaborate cover-up. Um, so, as you all know, because you're living this experience with us, this is a time of, of darkness. There are lots of great things happening too, but it's a time where um, the horror genre is, for a lot of people, feeling very um, much the story of truth as opposed to the nightmares that are lurking in the background. So we wanted to pick films, and we'll, we'll do this for the next while, um, that we felt really resonate with the situation. Oftentimes, uh, you know, long before COVID was even a glimmer in the eye of the world. Um, and that's that's how we got to Bug. Yeah. And to, to quote someone from who was in the comments section on the Bug trailer on YouTube, Bug is per the perfect film for our lives right now. And I think it really is, uh, not just because it's about, you know, a potentially invisible uh, thing that is attacking you and destroying your happiness in your home, mm -hmm. um, but also because of just the bigger themes of, of paranoia and uncertainty and the fact that this just film this film makes you want to go outside in a time when you absolutely can't go yeah. outside. And also themes of like government and media miscommunication, cover-ups, lies. I mean, it's All what a lot of stuff. people are a lot of a lot of really relevant stuff. But before we dive too deep into conspiracy theories both in the film and in real life, uh, let's start with some academic framework. I struggled this week in thinking about Bug with finding that, that source or that piece of scholarship that really spoke to me. So kept hunting, kept thinking, um, and eventually I settled on something that I think will allow me to still talk about paranoia, will still allow me to talk about conspiracy. The other things that I think are interesting in this film, such as um, you know depth of story information and the fact that it's a very subjective story, we, we hear what the characters are supposedly hearing, such as the worrying of the, uh, you know, um, helicopter and things like that, despite the fact that that seems to be an internal sound. Um, and the way that I thought we would frame it is by thinking about the concept of, of the liminal or liminality. Yeah, I, I think that's a great way to set it up. So talk to talk a little bit more about this liminality. No, uh, that was going to be it. I was just going to say the word and then we were just going to like. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. We'll move on then. Uh -huh, All right. Not. So now for a little bit of information about, but I'm just kidding. No, 
So we'll go back. We'll go thank back. You. Thank you so much. Um, because liminality is, I think, actually a really fascinating idea. And whenever I think about liminality, um, I always think of like that space between when you're in one room versus another, right? The threshold or the door frame, because technically there's that moment where you're not quite in uh, the one room, but you're not yet in the other, right? And so you're in this liminal or in-between space. And this is an idea that is not new um, as early as like the early 1900s. Um, scholars were beginning to do a lot of work about um, like anthropologists were doing a lot of work about initiation rites. Um, mm. And so Arnold Van Gennep uh, did a whole study where he was he looked at these initiation rites that allowed him to identify what he saw. And this is a quote as a series of rites of separation, transition and incorporation. Mm -hmm. um, and this this transitional or liminal phase um, was characterized as a sort of sacred time. Um, but and so think about like that transition between childhood and adulthood. Right. Um, one of the reasons why I think college life is treated the way it is, maybe not in actuality, but in, in popular culture is because we see it as a liminal space between being a child and an adult. So it's this sort of sacred time that you get to transition, right? Yeah, um, I think it can even be linked back to way earlier. Like I think Dante's uh, Inferno and the idea of purgatory is a very mm -hmm. interesting usage of liminal space. Uh, and liminality, particularly because it's it is purgatory functions for the Catholics and for Dante as this transitional space. It's not quite a terrible place because there is some hope, but it's definitely not a good place. And it's just this weird, unholy middle ground. No, you're absolutely correct. Um, and and I think that that's there's you know if you think about the concept of purgatory it is one that engenders a lot of um religious anxiety because we don't like things that don't fit neatly into to our boxes right um and looking at for example how dante depicts it right it's not a great place but it's not a bad place either it's just a place it's and, a place it's a place with hope but a lot of suffering and that, so when Van Gennep is, is looking at his initiation rites, um, I don't think he was proposing that it had never existed, right, in our sort of cultural understanding, but that he was noticing that time and again, regardless of what culture you were, regardless of what sort of um, practices you uh, and your peoples engaged in, there was always this sort of liminal phase. And to take that a step further, we now really understand that liminality is, is also oftentimes marked by a very... Uh, physical concept as well. And so liminal space, which I think is absolutely true for um, much of Bug, is this place of relative isolation. I'm reading this from an article by Rebecca Janiker, uh, where she's actually talking about memory, haunting, and liminality in Stephen King's Bag of Bones. And she says, and this is a quote from her, so a liminal space is one of relative isolation. It is a space apart from normal everyday experience, a place for confrontation, trial, and hopefully for progress. Being defined as a transitional place between two positions in a status sequence, liminality is an ideal, even necessary arena for individual development and growth. Where I think the horror genre begins to play with liminality is that we realize that either characters never escape out of their liminal space, mm -hmm. right? So to take the bug metaphor, um, they're in the cocoon, but they never make it out of the cocoon having transformed into their new forms. Yeah. 
the metamorphosis is not allowed to be completed. Exactly. Or um, there's something goes wrong, right? There's something contaminated in that liminal space that prevents them from having the experience they want. But the horror genre is one that is all about liminal liminality from the presence of dead bodies and things like um, zombies, which are sort of in between um, that which we recognized as human, but that which is no longer categorized as a living human. Um, and there's some interesting ideas about like other texts where they talk about how liminal space is not only between life and death, but it's also oftentimes between childhood or childlike tendencies and adult sexuality. And one of the things that is very uncomfortable about this film is that super extended sex scene where you get the like extreme close up um, on the nipple. Right. Um, and then you get like immediately thereafter a re- extreme close up on the um, praying mantis face. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's. And so this is a film that is highly sexualized, but it's also a film where uh, Ashley Judd's character is very infantile, right? She's, she acts like a child, um, and so does Michael Shannon's character throughout the entire thing. Um, and so, again, there's this constant, like, back-and-forth tension. And I think that anyone who is currently quarantining themselves completely understands what the horror of liminality, right? Because you're living your life, but it's not really your life. You're not really allowed to go outside, um, but so your home is your office and your school and your home, right? So we are all about the liminal, I think, right now. Yeah, certainly something a lot of people can relate to. Absolutely. middle ground place that you're trapped in. So that's our framework for today. Why don't you tell us about uh, this film? Yeah, so Bug, obviously, it's a 2006 psychological horror film directed by William Friedkin, who you may recognize as the director of The Exorcist. I don't Uh, think I've heard of that film before. Yeah, little known. It's a bit of an indie film, probably probably undiscovered by the masses. Uh, Uh, (laughs) It stars Ashley Judd, Michael Shannon, and Harry Connick Jr. Uh, The screenplay for the film is written by Tracy Letts, and it is based off of his 1996 play of the same name. And can I say just how terrific it is to have horror theater? Like, I feel like that's both an underrepresented um, area for exploration in terms of, like, it should have a stronger fan base. But I think it also, there are fewer plays um, that are horror because it's just a little bit more of a niche audience, right, to reach. Yeah. But they are so delightful. I th- and I think there's just, horror is kind of, I mean, we've talked, we always talk about this. It's kind of one of those genres that like gets looked down upon and theater is a place of very uppity people. Yes. Uh, I can say this. I'm a theater person. As I am have, I, so we can I both have say the it. Pa- I have the past. We can say it. We yes. can say theater people are kind of uppity, pretentious. And so they might not want to indulge in as much horror, which is a genre that constantly is looked down upon. But Tracy Letts is not someone who is afraid uh, of horror in the theater though. He is actually an American actor, playwright, and screenwriter. He received the 2008 Pulitzer Prize for Drama for his play, August Osage County, and a Tony Award for his portrayal of George in the revival of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. He's played in a lot of very popular TV shows. He's in Homeland, Divorce. He's been in really popular films like uh, The Lovers, Lady Bird, The Post, Ford v. Ferrari. Uh, and that's just on the acting side. He's also quite popular in the theatrical world as well as the screenwriting world. 
He's adapted three films from his own plays, Bug, Killer Joe, uh, and both of those were directed by William Friedkin, and then also August Osage County. Another one of his plays to be adapted was his uh, was a play called Superior Donuts, which was adapted into a television series of the same name. And his first screenplay not to be adapted from his own work, The Woman in the Window, is scheduled to be released this year in 2020. Uh, and so let's talk a little bit about his writing, particularly Bug. This play originally premiered in London at the Gate Theatre in Sept on September 20th, 1996, and it had Shannon Cochner as Agnes, and it actually featured Michael Shannon as Peter. He was the original Peter when it opened up in London. Uh, the off-Broadway premiere was at the Barrow Street Theater on February 29th, 2004, and the lead actress, Amanda Plummer, who was originally slated to play Agnes, she dropped out from the Broadway premiere 24 hours before it was supposed to open because it was originally supposed to open on February 21st, but then got pushed back to being open on February 29th so that they could replace this, the lead actress. Uh, but this actually allowed the original, uh, Shannon, who was in London, the London production, she came back and she reprised her role. So her and Michael Shannon were able to bring their, the roles that they both originated in London to the off-Broadway premiere. So that was, it worked out, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The play received a warm reception. People liked it, but they weren't oh, they weren't gushing with it. It got several nominations for this performance, but it wasn't anything just overwhelmingly good. <laughs> uh, however, it was good enough for Friedkin uh, to contact Tracy Letts after having seen the play himself in order to cooperate, in order to make a screen adaptation of this play. Friedkin described uh, it as this film, the film version that he created, as the most intense piece of work I've ever done. And that oh. is, uh, this man is no stranger to the horror genre, to intense filmography, so that's, yeah. Pretty intense. Pre must have been pretty intense. Uh, so Michael Shannon, as I mentioned before, had played the same part on the stage, but, and Lionsgate actually pushed back against the casting of Michael Shannon in this role here because they wanted to cast an actor with more name recognition. However, Friedkin was determined to have Michael Shannon perform in this film, stating that he brought a unique quality to the part, which I think is quite true. Uh, Friedkin also says that the film would have been flagged in the 1960s or 1970s as a horror film, but insists that that is not the case. He told comingsoon.net, that there were all sorts of people who looked at Bug, including magazine people like Fangoria, and they called it a horror film, he said. The horror connection came from a lot of sources. Friedkin claims that Bug is, in many ways, a black comedy love story. He states uh, that it's not a genre film, but marketing works in a mysterious ways. They have to find a genre for it. This is a comedy, this is a melodrama, this is a love story, this is a horror film, this is an adventure film. But he insists that Bug does not fit easily into any of those categories. So let's pause there for a second, because I think that, I mean, this is like a pretty loaded statement. Um, and it's funny because you told me, like, I don't know, two days ago, you said, just to let you know, as like a spoiler, I'm going to tell you that not everyone associated with the film saw it as horror. And then when I was reminded, because I'd forgotten that it was directed by Friedkin, my first thought before I knew it was Friedkin himself who disagreed with it being horror, I was like, 
but don't they know it's directed by Friedkin? Um, so I think there, there's that kind of interesting element of, uh, you know, we have this big name in the genre producing a film that he's going to say is not genre. And I know you're right that he has directed other stuff, but that's still something to think about. But I think there's, there's some bigger things here worth unpacking. Um, and the two that come to mind is first, this is proof that the concept of liminality is the perfect choice for this film uh, as a framework because yeah, it can be, I don't really, I didn't personally read it as a black comedy um, because Mm -hmm. the film makes me too itchy and anxious. Um, But you could read it that way. You certainly can read it as, you know, a romance story, but that doesn't remove it from being a horror genre too. Right. And I, and I think he's just pushing back against like one label trumping all. And I think that's really important what you just said, because he's writing in 2006, mm-hmm. right? He's writing before this current renaissance of the horror genre is, is experiencing where we're beginning to acknowledge that we can have a film like, for example, and I really think it starts with around the time of, of Get Out. Well, that, yeah, that was the, that's the first film, yeah. horror film in a good while that got mainstream recognition from the Academy Awards and other uppity film places. And, you know, I I just read yesterday that Parasite, so yesterday being the 15th of April 2020, that uh-huh. Parasite is currently the second highest viewed film of all time on Hulu services. Yeah, I um, saw that. Now, it annoys me because it didn't tell me which one was first. Um, and you know how I feel about telling me something the second without telling me what the first option is. But I think I would be curious to know if now um, Friedkin would be willing to to rephrase or, or take back a statement. Because what I feel like he's doing is he's saying, it's please don't lump it into the garbage that you think horror is. It's right. more than that. Um, and so I'd be curious to know if he'd be willing to say now, you know what, it is horror, but it's the good, you know, like sort of profound kind that we're seeing more of today. Yeah, I, that might be interesting. And I think it would probably be marketed differently if it came out today. Uh, we both watched the trailer before this because you mentioned that you had read an article about Bug where they talked about the how poorly this film's trailer actually reflected the film itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we did, we watched it and it is a very bad trailer. It is, it is. Pr- it is cut together like a very stereotypical horror film. Or that- a thriller, right? Like it's, it, it, it also kind of had that whole, like, you know, the husband's come back and he's not happy. Like it was just, right. a, it was gross. Um, and, perfectly and, but, and it was it very much like, Confer- seemed to confirm that there were bugs, that there were, it was like, there are bugs in them, that is scary, right? Rather than, that's not really what this film is about at all. It's right. more of this psychological experiment of like, are there bugs? Who is lying? Who's telling the truth? What the hell is going on? But that's not how the film was marketed at all. Also, the trailer spoils the ending. Yeah, which... can I just say, <laughs> if you're going to make a horror trailer, you should be shot sight like on the spot if you use any footage from the last 10 minutes of the film i she ashley judd's character says in this trailer that that michael shannon's character has to kill her which is the that that is the ending that's supposed to be this like twist ending that you're like i i guess they've gotten to this point but no they just the trailer is like 
it's it's only a minute and 17 seconds long but yeah. that minute and 17 seconds long single-handedly ruins the ending and totally misreflects everything that the film is about yeah, it's like the the trailer maker said what are the least important scenes in this film okay i'm gonna include all of those now what is the most important scene from this film ah yes let's include that too i'd be right. really curious to see um how a24 would create a trailer um for this film because i'm sure it would also be super wrong and wacky but it would be in a completely different wrong and wacky way it would just be mostly shots of bugs and an empty hotel room i bet Yes. Oh, that's exactly what it'd be. And then some, like, they'd find the line that I'm not even sure. No, I know what line they'd use. They'd use that super creepy line that Ashley Judd delivers, character delivers, right before they have sex for the first time, where she's like, boy, get over here. Like, they'd use that super creepy line, and you'd be like, what is this incestuous? Right? Like, that's all we would know. Oh, yeah. Oh, that that would be, that's that's how A24 would, yeah, would, would definitely market this movie. It would be fantastic. I have to say, like, because this is the only time I will ever be able to brag about this in my entire life. Um, I didn't see the trailer for this film because I actually saw it at the um, AFI uh, premiere of the film. Oh. Um, yes. So my cousin-in-law used to work for AFI, and the one year that we were living in Southern California... She was like, you want to go? And I was excited, but I don't think I realized at the time how excited I really should have been. Um, mm -hmm. So we saw that movie and then we saw um, Curse of the Golden Flower, uh, which was and so and we just like randomly were given those two films, I think, because they were the hardest for AFI to um, sort of like put into a neat little box. Yeah. And, um, so, and thus have a built in audience. Perhaps. Yes. Yes. And, and yet those two films, um, you know, I... I don't remember every film that I have ever seen uh, in theater. I don't remember every film I've seen, period, right? Let alone my viewing sure. experience. But those two films really stuck with me because, um, you know, it was so neat. So there's my only, like, getting to be part of the inner circle moment. So there you go. Well, there you go. Speaking of the film's release, <gasps> yes, it was, uh, that was a perfect little segue there. Sometimes Fantastic. you really luck out. Uh, I figured I'd acknowledge you. Thank setting you. up a perfect transition for me. Thank it was distributed you. by Lionsgate and it premiered in May of 2006 in France, uh, in, over in France at the director's Fortnite selection at the Cannes Film Festival. Uh, then it received its US premiere at the Fantastic Fest on September 25th, 2006 in Austin, Texas. And then finally it opened in the United States wide on May 25th, 2007. So almost a year after its Cannes Film Festival debut. It had a budget of $4 million and made $8.1 million back. So that's double its budget. Uh, so it was a moderate success. Not really, not a huge success by any means. It always uh, amazes me when we talk about like millions of dollars being a moderate success. And, it, well, and, it, and the yeah. moment you said that, like the moment you said how much they made, I was like, oh my goodness, so little, right? But like, it's, it's just, we have, conf the industry has skewed entirely our understanding of money. Right. Well, and I mean, you have, so that budget of $4 million doesn't even include the advertising costs, which are usually about, it's at least half of what it takes to make the film. And then in order to make your money back, you kind of have to make more over double what you, what it is because you're splitting it with the theater. Yep. So, that eight million on a budget of four million is probably not very much. They'd be lucky if they broke even there. Wow. 
And the film received very mixed reviews. Some critics really loved it. Roger Ebert, he really liked the film. Many other critics called it Oscar worthy. However, many people really hated this movie. Hmm. So the Rotten Tomatoes score, the critics gave it a 62. Audience gave it a 34. The Metacritic score, critics a 62. Audiences a 51. The Letterboxd score is a 3.4 out of 5. And then here is a fun one. So despite a lot of critics really enjoying it, the cinema score for this film is a rare F. It got an F from general audiences. And as of April 2020, it is one of only 22 films ever to receive such a rating. And uh, when I was looking at this list of the other 21 films, I, I noticed the trend. 15 out of the 21 films on that list are horror films. Is that it for the background? Yeah, that's it. That's okay. It. Anthony has the advantage over me in that he has had the privilege of seeing the theatrical production uh, live. Yes. And you said that one of your complaints of the film actually stems from the fact that, that you know for a fact that it is a theatrical um, adaptation, as well as just some decisions that were made that you feel worked better um, on the stage versus the screen. Would you go ahead and start there? Because I think that'll be a good place for us to have our conversation. Yeah, I think this is a great place to begin. Uh, so obviously this was a play before it became a film. And there are so many elements that work about this film's adaptation of the stage play. Uh, I think the acting is quite incredible. The screenplay, I mean, having it, having the, the person who wrote the play also write the screenplay definitely helps in making that transition. I think the production design is incredible. They really, they do a very nice job uh, of creating this world and this space. It looks very grimy and disgusting and, but also not overly, it's very, it's very realistic, I think. And so I think it does a lot right. However, and I, I, I was definitely building up to a butt there. Um, I think that one of it's frustrating to see this this film do what I think so many other uh, stage to film adaptations do is that I think that in an effort to make it not look like a stage play, they've decided to over film it and use it. I think it's a lot of there's a lot of really interesting and specific choices that William Friedkin uses and particularly in terms of how the camera moves and the zooms and whatnot, uh, in order to make it look more film-like that I think actually end up detracting from what is going on. And you're right that this is a common problem. Um, and for us, it's a problem, but, but just a common pattern for mm-hmm. films that are adapted from theatrical works. Um, yeah. You want to make you don't want it to look like you're just watching a play when you're watching a film. They're two different mediums. Exactly. And I always tell my students, you know, that when I teach um, classes that are on like different art forms, I always tell students that one of the biggest differences between theater and film, besides obviously the presence of a camera, is audience agency. Right. Mm -hmm. As an audience member of theater, you can choose what you're going to look at Um, in a film. They're going to direct your attention a little bit more. And I, I think that that led to a lot of my problems with this film adaptation of Bug. 
because one thing that there's one really major difference between the play bug that I saw and the film of bug and that is the locations. So in the play of bug, it's entirely in the hotel room. It, they never leave. Every single scene is in this very small claustrophobic hotel room that opens up into the audience. So that fourth wall that would finish off the hotel room is not there. So the audience feels like it's in that hotel room with them the entire time. Whereas in the film, there are several locations outside of this hotel room. And then even when you're in the hotel room, due to how the camera uses zooms and whatnot, it doesn't feel quite as small or as claustrophobic as I think the play is able to do and, it, and is able to be just by the nature of it is only in one location. So I'm going to agree and disagree with you. I think that the actual space of the hotel room at times doesn't feel as constrained as it is because we know it, it can't be right. You can't film and have all the film crew and be in a place and have it actually be that small. And so there are times that like, it just feels a little bigger than you know it would have to be um, because right. of the location of the distance of the camera to the actors. But with that said, I think that for me, all of the other moments worked um, for a couple of reasons. One, I appreciated the outdoor scenes, um, both the one when they're outside at night and also when they're in the honky tonk, in part because it reminded me of how lifeless motel room was going to eventually become. Mm-hmm. Um, I also personally, and you know that I'm, I'm not a big fan of, of like gimmicky cinematography. We talked about this a lot when we had our episode of it follows and how right. we couldn't stand the pan. Um, the only one I'm, I'm okay with is Astor's use of the upside down world, you know, flipped view that he does. And even that I think will get tiring after his third film. Um, <laughs> but for me in this particular instance, it worked because I, I wanted to feel uncomfortable. Um, I needed to feel like something wasn't right. And this entire film makes me paranoid because there'll be a close up, and I'm like, why is there a close up of this? What am I supposed to pay attention to? What am I not noticing? What am I supposed mm-hmm. to be noticing? Um, and I thought that was a very effective use of creating that sense of paranoia in me. Now, if that's not what you're seeing as being valuable in the film, or if you felt you got that in other ways, I could see how that would be unnecessary icing on top of the cake. See, I, yeah, I think that that's my biggest problem is it felt unneeded. If the performances were weaker and Ashley Judd and Michael Shannon weren't able to effectively communicate this horror and this, the trapped nature and how things aren't quite what they seem, I think then, yeah, you would absolutely, I could see why you might resort to these camera tricks in order to be like, isn't this just a little bit off? But the performances are doing that. So I, it just felt distracting. And I wished that the camera would stop moving so we could just see these actors acting. Michael Shannon is incredible. He's performed this role many times. And Ashley Judd is surprisingly good here. Just. Well, see, I wouldn't even use surprisingly. Like the things that I think of when I think of her sort of at her best um she's really good at that like flawed slightly broken slightly childlike but also somehow sexualized character like uh-huh. that's her wheelhouse i don't know i feel like 
what this film did effectively for me, and it did so by having the cinematography, because you're right, the performances on their own communicated what they needed to communicate. But for me, I felt like it's, it's an onslaught, right? So it wouldn't have been enough to just have the actors. What happens is, is that you have the actors and you have the camera work, and then you have some other decisions that we'll talk about in a second. And then you like keep layering them on top of each other so that by the time you're about an hour in, you're like, I have itchy skin. And this is especially not good during COVID-19 when I'm not supposed to be touching my face all the time anyway. (laughs) And then you're like, "Um, is this real? I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Right. Like, and I just felt like it all works together to constantly undermine your experience. And one of the ways it does so is again, through that depth of story information, that subjective depth of story information. And I think specifically of the scenes, um, where we hear the helicopter, right? Uh-huh. And we don't know if it's supposed to be um, diegetic as in there. They actually, anyone who would be in the room would hear it. Or if it's supposed to be internal diegetic, only the characters can hear it because it's in their heads. And I think that e- any of those things by themselves are problematic. But put together, for me, it just became a package that, that really worked. And I think for me, it just seemed unnecessary and I and just artificially like put over because I I, I don't know I think probably because I've seen how effectively this story can be communicated without the camera zooming in and like doing and shaking and moving around so much I've seen it on the stage and just being and it being able to capture Mm -hmm. the same feeling without all of that I thought that it just detracted and it didn't do anything to help further communicate the story, which I think is ultimately the most interesting part of this. So I think this is quite a a good film to be talking about uh, right now. So that that YouTuber who left the comment on the trailer for Bug that said this is the perfect film for right now, I, I think they're right in many, many facets. Yes. So I'm going back to the article by Janiker, where she talks about the liminar, which is the person who's in the liminal space, holds a precarious position in terms of structural invisibility, being outside of society's normal boundaries and confined to a space somewhat shrouded in mystery. Essentially, liminars are temporarily freed from mundane concerns in order that they may contemplate the wider mysteries of life, then learn to become a more rounded mature member of their society. Um, Is that what I'm supposed to be doing during quarantine? I think that's what we're all like in theory supposed to be doing, right? Because everyone's like, oh, isn't this just like the best opportunity to, you know, write that novel you've always been wanting to write or learn that language you've always been wanting to learn? It's like, well, no, it's me battling my anxiety, having to make all my own food for some people, having to wrangle my kids all day, every day. Um, and work, right? Like, no, this is or so I think, not working, being, or not working, being laid right. off and like losing your income. Yes, and and I think that this film shows us again what happens when the liminar does not very clearly does not become the more rounded, mature member of their society. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, in that way, it's a very obvious uh, sort of understanding of things. I think too, the idea of like contamination contagion um that like we this idea that you know it can spread spread or be spread to you so easily that people won't believe you if you have it right none of this should sound at all uh unrealistic because it's more or less the world we're living in 
Right. And then I, I also think that it hits on something. This film is just what I, what the film and the play and just the ideas that it's communicating work so well because it's just like what would happen. It's in our world. If things, if someone was saying things that are just slightly off. So Michael Shannon has a line in there. That's just like the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. That's a line from a lot of politician stump speeches, like our real world politician stump speeches. Well, Michael Shannon has just taken it one degree further. Mm -hmm. And he's saying that these governmental agencies are lying to us about bigger structural things. These corporations are getting rich off of us by doing this thing that's just slightly worse than what they're actually doing to us right now. And so I think you can really realistically see how someone, particularly someone who, if the film is to be believed and some of these characters are that maybe Michael Shannon's character has some type of mental disorder and he is making it up. Mm-hmm. I think you can realistically see how he gets there. And if he's not making it up, um, you can see how easy it is for those who are disenfranchised to not be believed. Right. And so I think that that is very fitting with what's been going on right now and how we're seeing what we're seeing, just like massive miscommunications between the news and our politicians going on right now. And so I think it's very natural that something like this would speak to people. And it's interesting. So I was um, reading a description of the film and it was describing Michael Shannon's character as a very charismatic character. Um, Because it said something like, you know, um, a down on her luck, slightly paranoid woman meets a charismatic stranger. And I thought that was an interesting word choice because that wasn't Michael Shannon's performance is so good that like he's he is charismatic, but not in the normal way that we associate with charisma. Yeah, it's a it's a different kind of charisma. It is. And and part of that part of charisma is, as you said, taking something that on the surface seems to be a fundamental truth. But the moment you begin to pick it apart, you realize it doesn't actually hold up. And the one that struck me was he makes a comment about how things are either one way or the other. They are either black or white. They cannot be both. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's at that moment when she's talking, uh, when they come back from the doctor, her and her friend, and he's like, do yeah. you believe me or do you not? Um, and, the hotel she, either has rooms or it doesn't have yes. rooms. And that, again, is like a super flawed way of thinking that we have encouraged. Yeah, um, it's. It's the entire theory of populism, us versus them. There's only two groups. You're either with us or you're against us. And I think that we encourage it in our test taking practices in school. There is a right answer and there is a wrong answer. Um, And so it has meant that we have found our world crumbling because we've been taught there is a professional time and there is a personal time. Um, We have been taught that there's um, also- A workplace and there is a home. Yes. And, and even more dangerously, we've taught people that there's like, you were either sick and therefore demonstrating signs of sickness, or you are not sick and therefore a healthy, right? Like, and, and that's why the CDC, like every day has to issue a new thing of no, 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 you can be asymptomatic, right? Like, because we don't mm-hmm. see that being a third option. Um, and this is just a very frightening way of viewing the world um, because right. it's a world without any middle ground. And if you read bug that way, right, then you have to decide there are either actual bugs and this is a, a real thing or there are none. 
but how much more disturbing and why don't we talk about the idea what if the answer is yes right what if at the end of the film we are supposed to believe that it is both because there's nothing that prevents it from being both right yeah why can't they both why can't the government both be doing things to him and they also be a little bit crazy yes um and so i think for all those reasons it's really hard for me to see it to go back to friedkin's point to see it as that black comedy because while the premise is so you were trying to like make a good case before our podcast about how like i mean the premise it's a little bit be. it's a little bit uh absurd i think just this guy coming in and being like hey there are bugs in you and then you gave them to me isn't that isn't that crazy it's bad right that sounds a little bit crazy how and it's if you're going to pitch it as a black comedy it's like pitch black yeah see and i think it can be comedic and it can be certainly absurd and it, it is it has its it has its lighter more comedic moments and and again if you think about one of the things i often think about comedy is is like how fast everything happens right and that part is certainly kind of comical from an outsider's perspective but i can't view it as anything other than horror because Again, I think it's giving us a way of understanding the world that is especially apparent now, but that I think is always true, that points out that if we don't understand how to make liminal space work, if we don't understand how to use it to be healthier, um, we're just going to die horrible, bloody, tinfoiled deaths, um, and there's no, no escaping that. Yeah, I think it's particularly... It's the message comes through probably even more clear today than I think it probably did when it was made because we're in an increasingly polarized and divided time in which it does increasingly seem like there is only, there's either this way or this way. And I think that allows that message of the film, of the dangers of that, to really kind of like come through really strong. <laughs> So um, up next, we mentioned it in this episode, but we are going to devote an entire episode to uh, 2019's Oscar winning film, Parasite. We are very excited because apparently uh, what we have edited out of this current episode was the fact that Anthony and I are not entirely in agreement about whether or not this is even a horror film. So but I've agreed to talk about it because I love Parasite. If are doing an episode on Parasite, get you to watch Parasite, that's a good thing. Please watch Parasite between now and then. And in the meantime... Yeah, share us with your friends. Uh, if you have any questions for us or comments about the podcast, feel free to reach out to us via social media or, in, or at our email, all of which are included in the description. And thank you. <laughs>